Let me read the scripture to you this morning. Philippians 4th chapter, verses 4 through 9. This is our joy of series in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put in, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God. God speaking to you. Your life, your world, the word. When I think about peace, one of the images I get in my head is the picture of the 60s or or 70s. You know, the peace sign on Volkswagen bugs and and leather necklaces and on bandanas and on the handles of picks. I I think of some long-haired dude or Afro-clad brother holding up the V-fingers, you know, the sign of peace. And with that image, of course, uh, comes a culture of, of, of brainwashed and drug addicted or influenced young kids, brainwashed and under the influence of substances that kind of take normal comprehensive skills to a place out of this world. For everybody knows that peace has to be fought for. And that someone has to lose and die and suffer so that whatever version of peace you prescribe can flourish. Peace. To to live in a state of peace is to have your mind and hearts go somewhere else. to, To a world and to thoughts and to people beyond this world. Because in our world, there just isn't much peace. And when there is, it always comes with war. It always comes with a fight. It always comes with someone feeling left out or or someone's agenda coming forward. In this passage in Philippians, Paul, who is in prison for his belief in Jesus, writes to a new group of of believers who may soon and may have already uh, begun to face similar struggles in their following of him and their following of Jesus. And he calls them to imitate him. And part of this imitation is to rejoice. And he says, again, I say rejoice to have joy in the peace that God gives. Now, this text says to to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding or comprehension. Does that sound familiar? I mean, Paul, you are in prison, you're humiliated, possibly you'll never get out, and you are calling people in and from a world of suffering to a peace that surpasses all understanding. In other words, give me the peace, bandana, pass the pipe, pass the needle, here comes the brainwash. But all sarcasm aside, Christianity does not hide 
that it has a brainwash side to it. Scripture calls us to wash our brains, to to reverse the, what's happened to us by living in a sinful world, to cleanse, to renew, to to sanctify our thinking with the good news, the revealed love and purpose and plan of God. Let that brainwash you. Let that wash your thinking. Let it clean up to, to yes, to, to somehow take a hit off God's spirit and mind and life changing good news to, to in a world of problems and hell live in the joy of a peace that only God can give, that only God can sustain. So actually what he's saying is don't get bent out of shape in anger or anxiety in the circumstances, but actually be shaped, be brainwashed, be changing your thinking, be transformed by the presence and power and person of God. He says, don't get bent out of shape. You may be imprisoned, you may be beaten, you may be going through a whole lot for your faith, but don't get bent out of shape, he says. Look with me at verse 5. It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. If you look at this, this gentleness here, it's, the, the, the word is a, is a, is an, um, is the opposite of the word anger or, or aggression. And what he's saying here is when things get hard, when, when things are tough and people are treating you wrong or badly, don't get angry. In other words, don't be how you are or would normally and naturally be in most circumstances. Don't be taken off course practically in your mind or heart by fear or danger or aggression towards other people. The scripture here says to be gentle, to not be bent to anger or aggression in your pain or your problems. Well, let's think about the gentleness and that Paul is talking about the anger he is seeking to counter here. Not not all anger is bad in and of itself. But let me explain to you this. This anger actually begins by believing and exercising a strong belief in your ability to control your world. That you, because no one else can or can as well, that you have to or will or continue inside and outside to hold it together, either bound by duty or obligation, that that you kind of have a hard edge, that you have a vice grip. You have a strong arm or a strong mind over the world. That, that whatever is out of control will meet your grit. That, that if something's out of control, get ready because it's going to meet your traction, your hardness, and it will be stopped. But anger is the inevitable reaction when your grit gets ground. When, when, when your hard tools break under the weight and power of evil or forces beyond your control, or, or whether when overwhelming issues of, of, of your world and its events and all the relationships. And so when your strength, when your hardness, when your resolve, when your control snaps like anything hard or puffed up in, in high pressure, it makes a loud, offensive noise or grinding or, or like a lawnmower over a rock that is resistant. It, it, it shoots out and off and can injure or hurt and it's being controlled or crushed. You see, this anger is being controlled and injured and hurt in that control where you snap or break loudly and offensively. This anger says, 
I have only been able to trust myself. I can only trust my, uh, my, my competence. I have no other hope or power or strength in myself or outside of myself. And now, therefore, in my powerlessness, I get thrown or crushed or fall as heavily as I have been towards in my life. I am now controlled by the weight and resolve of my trying to make things come under control. Now get this, the actual, the actual momentum and inertia of your attempts towards self-peace and self-worth and self-satisfaction, it results, when, when things get out of control, you don't whimper, but you give a raging cry. You just don't fall, but you violently flail in helplessness and hopelessness. It's anger. It's your control out of control. It's your ability to control circumstances lost. I am not a big comic book person. Okay? So for you comic book guys who analyze all these characters, you got to give me a break here. But I grew up watching the Hulk. Friday night, right after Dukes of Hazard, Or was it? Okay. But the Hulk is a story of a man who's got this chemically induced rage. You know, when there is extreme pain or distress, he becomes a superhero. He rises to the occasion, meeting adversity with his strength, with his ability to control and, and jump high and have powers over other powers in this world. But they're ironically destructive and out of control and lonely. You ever notice with Hulk, he never has a woman. He never has any clothes left. And, and he has no legacy. He's just anger and he's enraged, but he's a hero. The Hulk, you know what the Hulk needed? He didn't need to figure out the chemical formula. The, the Hulk is like this real mad creature man. That he just kind of needed a hug of love and comfort and support so hard that he himself could not break out of it, but only be healed by it. Because the Hulk himself would think, whoever hugs and loves that hard to control my rage and my anger, that person must be able to handle my world and give my rage a rest. To give the Hulk a chance to be gentle. You know? You remember the, the Hulk show would be the doo-doo-doo, the real sad music? To let that be the music the whole time in my life. To, to give, you know, what's, what's sad is our anger and our lack of gentleness that Paul was talking about is a sad loneliness. It's misguided strength. Are you all there is? Do you really believe there's no other help? There's no higher power to trust in? Are you so hardened to stay alive and stay above and stay ahead that you actually hulk, if you will, at this life that is evil and you're mean and you're hard and you're deceptive all because no person or no theory or no power has proven able and loving enough to heal and control and care for you or your world? Paul is saying, as an apostle, gentleness is a clear indication that there's more than you and all you can be or do or can't be or can't do here. Gentleness says, there is a higher power that I trust in when things grip me wrong or grip me wrongly or seek to snuff out my life or the life of those around me. 
You know, there's one kid to worry about at school. And it's not the boisterous one. It's not the one coming down a hall like this. Man, no, don't worry about him. He's showing you all he's got. It's the kid that's quiet even after he's picked on. You know, the kid that trip up and he's like, give you that look and keep going. Uh Uh-uh. That kid has a big brother somewhere. You know, he's the freshman with the senior brother. You didn't know his brother or his cousin was like the star linebacker or whatever. And you, you trip him up or treat him wrong and he just give you this look. Next thing you know, hey man, you been bothering him? You know, the, the kid who's quiet, quiet, he, he, he's like the, the kung fu man. He's got peace. He knows he can pull it out anytime he needs to. You know, keep pushing him. Leave me alone, guys. You remember how the Incredible Hulk was? Guys, please. You don't want to make me mad. You know, it's it's the calm kid. You got to be careful of. And so, you know, you, you see, push this kid. Next, you know, Kung Fu, everyone's on the ground. Or or maybe he's got a gun into that long black coat. You just don't mess with the quiet kid after you mess with him. And he's still quiet because he has something bigger than what you see bringing his world under control. And Paul's ask and, and encourages, you may not have a gun or a big brother or no Kung Fu. But live in this truth. You have a God who's bigger than your circumstances, in your anger, in your rage. Look to him. But this world word is not only for the aggressive, but to the fearful and anxious. He calls us not to be anxious. Look with me again at verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. He calls us not to be bent by the struggles and pains and problems of the world to anxiety. Now, anxiety is that feeling or drive that comes from having someone else or something else in control that you can't completely trust or believe or love you or watch out for you, or come back for you in your dilemma. It's fear. It's a nervous and consuming energy fear. It's it's living in the fear of the certainty that things will fall apart and the uncertainty that things may fall apart. You know, it's that ring kind of fear. Okay, y'all, y'all, anyone here see the ring? Boy, I got messed up watching that movie. See, I'm a challenge man. And so my brother Joel's like, man, the ring was the scariest movie ever seen, dog. I'm like, no, it ain't. So I went and ran it and watched it, and that was, and I, I was good. I was good through the movie. They were fighting it, you know, and, 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 and okay, I, I gotta tell you the premise of the movie. I'm not gonna tell you the end, but, I, well, I might. I, I'll tell you the premise of the movie. So, there's this videotape, and the tape is, if you watch this tape, you're gonna be dead in seven days, right? The, the girl on the tape gonna come, and she gonna get you. So, you know, the crazy teenagers, they pop it in, they watch it. Couple of them die. Well, all of them died and watch the tape. And then, you know, and then at the end, during the movie is this fight to try to reverse, you know, seven days are going on. The people who watch, like the grown people that saw the tape, they're kind of believing it and they're seeing the signs that guess what? In seven days, you're going to die. Cause after you watch the tape, you get this phone call. Bring seven days. You know, you did. Um, and so during the week, you kind of see what's going on. And at the end of the week, she gonna get you. She coming out that TV. She gonna get you. And it's just a matter of time. Anxiety is what you might feel those seven days. Day one. Uh oh. Day two. 
Anxiety is the worry of something big and bad and bigger and more powerful than you and harmful to you coming to you. It's a terrible scrambling energy inside that motivates you to strain for the possibility of life. And the problem is a possibility that makes it hard. That possibly you still will be gotten or destroyed or taken under. It's more than that though. It's the worry that you are in trouble because you did look at the tape. That you're culpable. That you did what you shouldn't have done. You got in the phone call and you're getting the signs that ha- as hard as you're trying, your life will not hold together long. You've messed up and you are going to get it. Anxiety. Let's face it. We've all watched the tape. We've all been born into a world and with a heart that is deceitful and wicked and failing and not always trustworthy that we have watched the tape in the sense that that we've been born into bodies and with minds that waste away and, and can be harmed and hurt by ourselves and others that you and I have watched the tape and that we're not alone but our relationships, our work, our family and community can and has and does hurt us in ways that we can't and won't escape. You and I have watched the tape that we have not done what was right all the time. That we've done some things that have trapped us or caught us in, in all sorts of addictions and neuroses and dilemmas spiritually and socially. Maybe not seven days, but our lives and our hearts have been given the phone call and the signs that say you have something to fear and those fears will get you. I can't help but think that if Paul was making the statement in a vacuum, we would quickly dismiss this don't be anxious thing. I mean, Paul, come on. We've watched the tape. I mean, you're telling us not to be anxious? We failed. We've messed up. We've sinned. We've experienced the precursors to an unfulfilled and lonely life. And, and it looks like things are spinning out of control. I mean, look around, Paul. Look at the tsunami over there. Look at the death. Look at the divorce. Look at all the issues people are going through. And I haven't even begun to tell you about what's going on in my heart. How can you say, have, have, be not anxious when there's death and destruction and issues all around? I mean, how can he or any person, you or anybody else say, don't be worried, don't be anxious? First of all, life is no movie. All right? And, 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 if, and if it were a movie... We are not the blonde head leading woman, okay? I'm anxious about life because in a movie, like a horror movie, I'm the black guy, all right? I'm going to die first. Uh, or, or, or maybe, you know, I'm the ugly girl or I'm the teenager drinking and sleeping around or, or I'm the proud guy who looks at life and says, oh, ain't nothing to worry about. You know you're going to die. You know, your sin is going to consume you. That thing you're trying to hide, you're so anxious because it's, it's going to get you. You look at your world and you think, man, have you <laughs> helped me with the, the st- statistics on death? One out of every one person dies. I mean, you don't get better than that. You, you're anxious. And, and, and my shame is, you know, you think my shame is going to smother me. My relationships are going to fail me. Life itself gives birth and growth to your worry. Be not anxious. 
You know what we are really confronted with in our fears and anxiety? What, what's the real big plot changing question or consideration? You know what your real fear and anxiety is? That God does not exist. Or the fear that you are alone. I mean, look at this room. I would be worried if this was it. You know, yeah, you're some pretty good people, but let some dilemmas come and we'll kill each other. The fear that he, God, up there will not help or he won't hear or he won't be there or exist when I need him to. But what if he does exist? What if God does hear? What if he is near and does care for you? This would be, and I believe scripture does teach, this is great and good and awesome news. That truly God is near and he's hearing and he's powerful to those who are in distress or in decision. That there is good news in fear, even joy in fear, if God exists and he's near. So Paul is encouraging us that we by faith not be bent out of shape by our world or anger or anxieties, but actually be shaped by God. To be shaped by the fact that he is here, that he is powerful. Be shaped by his very person according to who he is. Paul says, be shaped by his presence. Look with me at verse 5 again. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. God is near. Now, if you look at the rest of the text, it could mean he's coming again, and meaning the second coming of Christ, meaning he'll make things right. Yes, it's true. We look at that. Yes, but more than that, he is near the one that is being bent and hurt in their circumstances. He is near the one that has cause to fear or be angry that he is near. Now, understand what's going on here. Paul is in prison. He is not near those whom he's led to faith. They're not near him. Paul's not near anybody. And so they're separating what Paul is saying here. In my absence, I am not there to protect you and, and, and help you in person. But I want you to know this. In your problems, don't be angry. Be gentle and, and don't be anxious because God is near. He is near. He Now get this. He's not there. Now understand what the difference is. God is not wrapped up with you or, or tied up or imprisoned or powerless like you. Because some of us feel like, you know, if we're wrapped up, God must be wrapped up somewhere. No, the scripture says he is near you. He, he, he is in a position to come to you, to be with you as a free agent in your behalf. Let me put it this way. He is in calling and touching and reaching distance. The glory of this is that. This. That regardless how far. Or how deep. Or how distant. You have made your life from him. Or how deep a cut or hole. Or how far someone else has hurt you. Or your sin has has, re, has hurt you. You still can't be too far from him. Not for this to be true. That God the Lord is near you. 
That you can't be too bad off. That this is no longer true. That you can't have acted as bad. Too bad that this is not true. That he is in calling distance or reaching or touching. So Paul says to pray to him. To give it to him. To request of him relief. And, and help me to even thank him in the hard times. Why? Because being there also means you are not going through anything that he is not mindful and thus protective of you in. That pain you in right now? That thing that's got you anxious? God's right there. Reminds me of taking our kid to the doctor. You know? You're doing it for their own good. But boy, what a feeling when that needle goes in, right? They scream and who they look at? You! Like, why'd you allow this to happen to me? But even when they look at you with those eyes, like, what happened, mom and dad? I mean, I'm, I'm going through stress, and you think, man, you have to get this. This is for your own good, and you're going through. You know, the doctor immediately, like one doctor we went to, he had put the needle, and he had immediately give the baby to you. It's almost like the baby needs to know that in pain, that in this issue where they're even getting better, they need to know that the parent is near. You're going through something right now. And what you need to know is that thing you're in, God, your parent, your heavenly father, he's standing right there. And in your tears and in your struggle, you need to turn right to him so you can realize God is near and he cares and he's protecting and wants to hold you and help you through it. God is near to those who call him father. In the pain and distress of uncertainty, what being near means to be his children. He has never stopped being your ever-present father or you his child. He's near like that. That the distance in that relationship, if you know him as Lord and Savior, that, that distance in that relationship is never, ever changed. Not only by his presence, but we are assured by his power. Look at verse 6 again. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, I want to go back to this. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. Talk to God. Now, it's interesting. That word, everything, means one other thing. It means anything. <laughs> that, that everything and anything, this word leaves nothing out. It means just as it says. Everything. Which must mean that God will not only hear, but that means he can and will handle everything and anything. Every person, every and any problem, every and any force or power, he makes the Hulk look like Hank, whoever that is. I mean, the the fear of the ring, man, forget it. There is nothing too high, too hard, too tall, too low, too heavy, too small for him to handle. The, The Jesus of the Bible is this. He is your help. He is your help. You know, God's... He, he is exhaustively your help. You, you can look at any problem or dilemma, big or small, in the face and say, He is my help. If there was a yellow pages of spiritual help, there'd only be one listing. Did you know that? If you needed help with anything, you look at the spiritual yellow pages, it would say what? Father, 
Holy Spirit and sons. I mean, that's that's all you need is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's got the excellence and the know-how and manpower for whatever your heart aches and yearns for. For He is God. And He is near. The instruction is clear. If you try to do it yourself or call hustle man down the street to do it for you, even the small things, if you think, no, I can handle that. I can do it. It will break and hurt and crush you. The scripture says, bring him into that. Yeah, I know you're thinking this is too small to ask him for help. I've done this a million times in my life. I know what I'm doing. But the verse says, in everything, and to God in prayer, in mindful, having your mind set here that God is near and therefore he's considering me and thus in the things I'm doing, I need to consider him. But the power gets more incredible in its claims here. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It says he will give you peace. Now, as I look at this text in this ancient time, Paul has no idea how big or how evil or how complicated and how technologically uh, burdensome and busy our world is in the 21st century. But he gives a statement of promise of fact that he will give your heart and mind peace until Jesus finishes it all in his second coming. Now, what's this mean? God is so good and great and powerful that he is going to blow your mind with the comfort and power of his care for you. Let me explain you this way. If this were a horror movie... (laughs) You go down that dark hallway, knowing you've already seen some people die, but you know, you know how this movie, John, is that you in there? And, and they just come, kind of keep going, and you're yelling at the screen, don't go down that hallway! You're gonna die! And they go anyway, you know, no flashlight, nothing. Everybody dead, they're still going to, you know, what, what kind of peace is God talking about? The kind of peace that if He is calling your name, and He is with you, and the hallway is the way you must go, You'll go on down that hallway because you know God is there. You know, you look at the people in the movie like, you lost your mind, man? Yes, God is saying you will walk down the dark hallways and issues of your life confidently that you're going to make it to the next scene in life. And God says, do it because my peace is going to blow your mind. We're in the darkness. You still think you'll be okay. That regardless of everyone yelling at you, are you crazy? Come on, man, get angry, get mad, fight back, kill somebody, do something wrong, drink a little bit more of this, soothe your cares, and you'll say, no, I'm going to just take it to God. Are you crazy? That's like going down a dark hallway. But you know, if, if scripture, if the spirit is working in your life, God is there and you go anyway. And you sit anyway. I'll never forget one of the most transforming things ever happened in my life is when I was assistant pastor at Redemption Fellowship in Atlanta. There was a 39-year-old lady, two kids, what, five years old and two years old, three, had cancer, breast cancer. And, And I was the one who was taking her back and forth to those chemo treatments. And she would be too weak. To, to get herself in the car and, and you take her home and, and there are her kids trying to get on her but she's too tired to put her arms around them. And so I'm sitting in this cancer place just taking some time. I usually leave it there. Her name is Gina. And I would sit down with Gina. I'd say, Gina, how you doing? 
And she would smile. I mean, I wasn't smiling because something went wrong that morning. Just car wouldn't start or something. I'm all mad. And I looked at Gina and said, Gina, what's wrong with you, girl? I mean, are you okay? You know, and one of those questions when I ask, are you okay, is, you crazy? I mean, did the chemo mess with you? Or what's going on? I mean, you're smiling and these kids and your husband, you're 39 years old and you're about to check out of this life. And she says, Howard, I got a peace. I'm like, what? She said, you ever heard this scripture? God's going to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. I'm like, yeah, I went to seminary. I know that verse, but but don't go there. And she went there. She says, I have a peace that surpasses all understanding. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where I got it. I, I know I got it from God. I don't, I didn't make it happen. I, I didn't have to do three steps forward and three steps back and, and turn around and get it in my dilemma in the dark hallway. The Lord communicated something through my heart and my mind and I'm peaceful in it. I couldn't deal looking at her family, but she could and did. And she was a good mother and wife and, and church member to the end. And Gina went on to be with the Lord and her words were still, I have peace. But be assured of this. God's peace comes when you need it. And you request it. This is not a typical brainwash. I'm telling you. Here was I get, I'm going to get a little mystical. This is the very presence of God sought for and answered and given to you. So he can work in you and in your dilemmas. But let me explain something though. Half of what may be a good resume about God and what he can do is a question of his character. And his person. Can't he be trusted with this much power? This is not a magic trick. This is not, he's not trying to hypnotize you. Look, look with me at verse eight in closing here. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, yes, I do believe Paul is saying think on heavenly and godly things. Think on what's good. Think on what's all right. But only because they are God's production. The book of Romans says God reveals his intangible qualities and characters in nature. So we sing songs like for the beauty of the earth, for mother, sister, brother, child, for all the things we see. Lord, we give you praise so that in in essence, you will know and see and come to know what kind of God this is that's promising you to give you peace. This list of things says this. God will not harm you. He will not hurt you. He's not a bully. He's not playing games with your life. He's not hiding an agenda, promising a power that he cannot deliver. God is not a magician or a hypnotist. He is pure. That he alone and ultimately against anything or anyone you can think of is worth admiration and excellence and praise. This is the character of God. So think on these things. And when you do, remember what kind of God promises to never leave you or forsake you. And when you see that he is noble and he's right and he's good and he's trustworthy, and he's praiseworthy, then you can have peace because, you know, that kind of God is watching over my life. I've resisted counseling in the past. 
Because I don't care how much expertise you got. How do I know you love me? I've even thought, you know, I'd rather talk to my dad, who may not have the same psychological skills, about my problems. I mean, I've been tempted to do it and just say, Daddy, here's one, and I know he might not be able to handle it all. Or, or, or Terrence, hey, let me tell you what's going on. I know he can't be like a psychiatrist and handle it all. But then I look at it and I think, man, I would rather go to him because I can trust who they are and trust that they love me. And Paul says, remember good and noble and pure and loving and trustworthy things because that is the God you serve. So you can go to him because you can be assured that in his character, he loves and cares for you. The ironic truth of being shaped by God in prayer and supplication in times where anger and anxiety usually take throne of our hearts is epitomized in the story behind This hymn I'm going to share with you, it is well. This hymn was written by Horatio Spafford in 1873 after two traumatic events in his life. The first was the Chicago fire of 1871. He lost everything he had. He was a prosperous businessman. He lost everything. Shortly after, while crossing the Atlantic, all four of his daughters died in a collision with another ship. His wife survived. Several weeks later, as he was, his own ship was passing on that, on the way the ship that his daughters had died on, right when he came to the spot that they died, he wrote the words to the song, It is well. It is well with my soul. What kind of peace does it take for a man to pass over the place where his daughters were taken and not curse God or curse this earth or even jump over the boat himself? It's the joy of God's peace alone that causes us to say without anxiety or anger, Lord, I trust you and I need you and you're near, that whatever comes, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you're near. You're not only near, but you care. And you're not only care, you're the Lord. A loving God. Lord, as we look at the cross, he who did not spare his own son, how do we characterize that kind of love, that kind of care, that kind of concern? It's a love that gives us peace in dark places, and in a dark world. I pray that that peace would be ours. In Jesus' name, amen.